This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Professional Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Soon we could all be out of a job, or so say the technophobes. On today's episode of 35 West, we'll be talking about the future of work itself and especially how that debate applies to developing economies, especially in Latin America. I'm your host, Richard Miles, and I'm pleased to have as my guest my colleague, Romina Bandura, a senior fellow on the Project for Prosperity and Development at CSIS. Welcome to the show, Romina. Thank you, Richard, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Romina, we started at CSIS roughly the same time, and we discovered soon after that that we were actually once neighbors. So you're living next door. This is back, I think, in your grad school days, right? Yes. I was doing an internship at the OAS, and I was living in Friendship Heights, right. and that was like in the Jurassic era. So <laughs> you probably wondered who is that loud, noisy, obnoxious family living next door with little kids. So, <laughs> well, I remember you were going to Argentina. That's right, and okay. that's why we got connected through the neighbor that right. I was living with. So either before or after that, you were trained as an economist and then became a senior consultant at the Economist yeah, Intelligence Yeah, so, so what happened was I finished grad school and I moved to New York. I was there for a while at the UNDP. Then I moved back to D.C., and I worked in different places. One of them was the EIU, and that was my last job before coming to CSIS. And that was yeah. based in Washington or in London? Yeah, okay. Washington, yeah. I've right. been here for 11 years to okay. Washington, D.C., so. so. That's just almost long enough to qualify as a Washington native by Washington <laughs> standards. Once you hit your 12th year, you're a full-fledged yeah, Washington native. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I'm from, actually. So, you know, I was born in Argentina, but I moved around a lot and lived in different countries. My parents are Ukrainian, so I'm kind of a mix of, of everything. I'm Argentine, Ukrainian, I'm married to an American, and I lived abroad many years, so... You're like your own mini United <laughs> Nations, right? I now. don't know where I'm from anymore. <laughs> that was one of the things that I thought were surprising. A lot of people don't know about Argentina. It has a substantial Eastern European population, or at least Eastern yeah. European origins, right? Yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, during the First World War and Second World War, a lot of immigrants traditionally been associated with Spain and Italy, but we had a lot of Eastern Europeans and Germans, mm -hmm. uh, Swiss. So it's a mix of cultures there as well. I remember going to a ceremony. It was The German embassy had a, a recognition for the Germans who'd lived there, I think, more than 50 years or something mm -hmm. like that. And I assumed it'd be mostly people who had come after the war. And I was surprised by the number of Germans who came yeah. before the war. Yeah. I mean, they were already there in the 20s and the 30s, so yeah. well so, before World War II. So Argentina is a little bit like the United States. It has had a, a lot of different waves of immigration. And so it's a good mix of people from different cultures. So you are the perfect person to talk about the developing world, or at least the topic that mm -hmm. we're talking about today, sort of the development and labor growth and all those sort of things. And you were the co-author of an excellent report at CSIS that came out last October called The Future of Global Stability, The World of Work in Developing Countries, which I encourage listeners to refer to. It's on the CSIS website. came out in October. And there are some very interesting global trends that you note in the report a lot of people are talking about. Yeah. You know, you Google the future of work, and I think something like 2 billion hits come up, right? So this is a— I think it's higher now. Higher now, probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, when we Googled it, it was a year ago. So I'm sure it's 
doubled. Right. So when I think of the future of work, I'll tell you what I think of, and mm-hmm. you tell me if I'm yep. right or wrong. You know, the future of work, I think, encompasses this idea that we have the rise of several things happening of uh, robotics, mm-hmm. which have been around a while. They're not exactly new, but also now paired with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and smart learning. So it's not just machines that are complicated. It's machines that actually learn uh, literally on the job. And then add to that the fact that the jobs that we used to think can only be done by a person turns out <laughs> if you pair the right robotics and the right AI, there are a whole slew of job categories that can also be done by robots or AI robots future work. When we're talking about future work, is that sort of what we're talking about? Yeah, so the debate on the future of work is very technological-driven. What you point out is correct. So the interaction of these different technology of the fourth industrial revolution or industry 4.0, you know, there are different names to this. So it's the interaction of these different technologies plus the fact that the velocity of change of these technologies, people are worried that the confluence of these two changes will suddenly, you know, displace a lot of people. What we wanted to do in this study is to find out if that's the case in developing countries. Mm -hmm. This discussion has been very rich country focused, very technology focused, and we wanted to see what the future of work looks like in the developing world. So that was sort of our premise. And it's a very good point because obviously in a country like the United States or UK or most of Europe, these still cause disruptions. Everyone can see something like Uber or host of technologies of Airbnb that cause displacements and, and so on. But yet countries like the U.S. are mostly not well adjusted or better equipped to deal with rapid changes in technology and and so on and so on, and not so other developing countries. Right. So I would argue, yes, that, you know, Europe and United States, they have better training systems, more resources, formal job markets where laborers are protected. So they are more prepared Mm -hmm. to adapt to these changes than developing countries. So, you know, we wanted to to look at that, but we also wanted to see what the future of work means. Mm -hmm. Technology is one disruption, but when you talk to stakeholders in developing countries, they are all saying, we have basic labor market challenges that have been unresolved. And in many cases, when I talked about robotics or AI, they were looking at me like, oh, my God, that's, you know, Star Wars, you (laughs) know, material. So they're still dealing with the overhang of previous labor problems, right? I mean, 50% of the world's population is still not connected to the Internet. Mm -hmm. And that's an average. You go to Africa, it's 25%, you know, is connected. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of the third generation of technology. We're not talking about the fourth industrial We're not talking about 5G. We're Mm -hmm. not talking about driverless cars, robotics, and and all those interactions. So when you look at the developing world, there are some unresolved issues. So what does that mean? The quality of jobs that, you know, these economies are producing are usually in the informal sector. And what does that mean? They are out of the laws, the the social protections. They are usually low productivity jobs. So think about all those street vendors, uh, retailers, think about people that might be working in factories that are unregulated, think about domestic workers, think about those trash collectors, those waste pickers, mm-hmm. you know, that recycle oh, material. Right now, yeah. Yes. In the world, there's 
2 billion people that are in the informal economy. So in some countries, like in India, it's 8 90% of the jobs are in the informal economy. So those are not, you know, high quality jobs. The second thing is that economies are not producing enough jobs to keep up with demographic changes. So you have demographic changes. Yes, there's, again, as a very OECD-rich country view that, yes, the world is aging. So in, in terms of proportion of people above 65, mm-hmm. that's over the total population, that's going up. But what we wanted to highlight in the report is that that number is in magnitude is 1 billion people versus the more than 3 billion people that will be under the age of 25 that will need education and jobs. So even though we have an aging trend, you still have an enormous number of of people, say, under 25, right? Exactly. And and there are certain regions of the world, Mm -hmm. like Africa, that will double their population in the next, you know, 50 years. And these are some of the regions that are also the lowest income and most fragile places. That's why we chose that stability piece that jobs are not just an avenue for income, but through a job, you exercise your skills. It's a way to connect to people, to contribute to society. If we're not creating that piece in our society and we have these regions that are unstable per se, we're going to have like a major problem in the next, you know, 30 to 50 years. So we wanted to connect that job creation Mm -hmm. piece with the quality and then the technological disruptions to paint a picture that, you know, we need to focus on, you know, not just technology, but the whole job ecosystem. So the report has a number of recommendations, things like, you know, more vocational training, sort of better primary education that focuses on creativity and developing more of a startup culture and all great recommendations. But as you well know, again, coming from Argentina, Argentina is probably a good example of how you can have a very talented workforce. You can have a good education system. You can have a lot of very productive people. But if you have either bad political governance or no political will, all the good ideas in the world aren't going to be enough. So as you looked at these four countries in your study, and there were Brazil, India, Kazakhstan, and, and Nigeria. Nigeria, right. Did you also look at the degree of sort of political will to actually look at these problems that you were talking about as they look at these new technologies and yeah. the labor force to do at least, say, half of the things that, that experts say would be a good idea? Does that exist yeah. in those countries? I mean, what we saw is that when we talked to a lot of the labor ministries and education ministries, many of our developing countries follow a political cycle in their policies. So it's very hard for them to look beyond, you know, five to 10 years. There's no real strategy Mm -hmm. for the future of work in these countries. So yeah, number one is you need to sit down with a range of stakeholders. And this is not just a problem of the government, the private sector, education, government, citizens that need to really like say, okay, what do we want 10 years from now? And I think that medium-term perspective is lacking Mm -hmm. because, again, we just follow a political cycle. That's the first thing. It's very short-term. The second thing is that a lot of of these countries have badly functioning labor markets. So the formal labor market is is very small. And so 
if people really want to, you know, there are good intentions, their people are skilled, but once they get unemployed from the formal labor market, it's very hard to find a new job mm -hmm. because the job generation capacity of those economies are missing. And again, it's not maybe political will, it might be also state capacity in mm -hmm. some of these countries. You know, the labor ministries are usually one of the ministries that are the least funded of all the different ministries that right. are, the country can have. Maybe it's not just political will, but it's also like the state capacity to implement these, these changes. Right. So, and the third thing is, I think we need to review you know, what it was called back in the, you know, 50s and 60s. I'm not an interventionist, but like some sort of industrial policy mm -hmm. to say, okay, what are we good at and what can we be good at in our country? And what are some sectors that could provide jobs in the future? And, you know, not just, you know, high-skilled jobs, mm -hmm. but, you know, jobs for a variety of people. Also in this report, we don't have the crystal ball to mm -hmm. say which are the sectors that will provide employment opportunities in the future, but we pointed out some key sectors. A couple of times in the report, it talks about cooperation with or coordination with the private sector. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me in Latin America, one of the problems or challenges is it's not so much whether the government gets involved or not, mm -hmm. you know, or creates industrial policy. It's the attitude that the government has towards the private sector or towards private capital, Yeah. right? If the attitude is they're the enemy, mm -hmm. then that's probably not a good basis on which to build a system of job training or, you know, skills-based uh, transfer. However, if the government says, okay, we need private capital, lots of it, we need the private sector because otherwise – the ability of a of a government official, no matter how yeah, you know, uh, to to sort of as you say predict the future, it's difficult for the private sector, but it's even more so for someone. Do you see a positive trend anywhere in the region, mm -hmm. or I guess let's talk country by country? Even are there countries in the region you think that are doing it correctly anywhere in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Mexico, in which they're kind of recognizing what's coming down the road mm -hmm. and they're saying, okay. Pairing with individual companies or individual sectors, say, how can you, employer A or B, help us train the next generation for the skills that are coming down? And I'll just give one example and then I'll, I'll stop because yeah. you're, you're the expert on this, not me. In Mexico, they have realized that they do have a, a slight and a temporary competitive advantage in additive manufacturing mm -hmm. or 3D printing, right? A lot of that is led by U.S. companies in Mexico that are doing all sorts of different work. But the window is closing. For Mexico to really stay competitive, it's going to require a lot of investment and a lot of cooperation yeah. at the municipal and state and federal level. And so far, Mexico has remained on that track. But a policy change you know, could throw them off in which if right. they don't want to work with the private sector or if they yeah. – that's going to go away. And, th and then that advantage because a lot of countries recognize this is additive manufacturing. Right, is. Right. How do you see it from your point of view? Yeah, so on the private sector issue, the private sector in our countries are also sometimes dysfunctional. And so you know, we, we had also a, a bad experience. I mean, or I want to say bad, but, you know, we had a mixed experience with privatization. So people, like, think about the private sector as, you know, they're going to just fire everybody and they're just there to make profits and they don't see any. Because it became crony capitalism. Exactly. Right? Yeah, like Argentina is a good example. And, yeah, you know, and a lot of these countries are ruled by these 
rich families mm-hmm. that control everything. Right. And so there's... So when people think capitalism, they think those 10 right, rich families. Right, right. And there's no competition. Mm-hmm. And there are some legitimate concerns there. The thing is that, you know, the private sector, we can't rely on, on governments to just employ people. Mm-hmm. And so... The private sector is the motor of an economy. It creates nine of, you know, this is the IFC study that came out, you know, a few years ago that showed that nine of the 10 jobs created come from the private sector, you know, in developing countries. The private sector can innovate. We went back to this stabilizer role in many countries. So it has a very important role to play. So it's not just, it has to be a partnership between the government, the private sector. So some of the ways that the private sector can help is like in, in the future of work, not only by the government has to create the opportunities and the enabling environment, but the you know, private sector creates jobs, but they also like can help in the skilling aspect. So I think there's been a big disconnect around the world on, you know, what are the skills that we need and mm-hmm. what the education system is producing. And I'm not saying education is just to prepare people for the labor force. It has other functions in society, but we need to have a closer marriage of what the private sector wants, what companies want, what you know, what type mm-hmm. of skills do we want, and what is the education system offering right now. So that's one avenue where the private sector can, you know, be a real good force in the in the labor market. In terms of the what you were asking me about sectors and competitiveness, you know, I'm, I don't know all the countries in Latin America, but I can give you examples of, in terms of this private sector marriage and sectors, I think Chile is doing a good job. They have a lot of startup initiatives as well for, for entrepreneurs. They've been creating an enabling environment for business for a long time. I think out of, you know, that political cycle comment I made, I think Chile has been able to maintain maybe some institutional stability. Uh, other countries, you know how it happens. Mm-hmm. A new government comes in and they just change everything. Right. So in that environment, if you're a private actor, yeah. how do you plan? Right. How do you you take a short-term um, position? Mm-hmm. So I think Chile is kind of the star in Latin America, but in terms of you know some initiatives or sectors, Central America has a great potential of business processing outsourcing, right? They have young populations, some of them, some countries very well trained in English. So that could be, you know, a possibility to create jobs. Tourism is another area where, you know, countries like Brazil, again, a lot of, you know, Mexico, Central America, they have huge potentials to showcase, you know, their beautiful, you know, places and also marry that with infrastructure development and employment opportunities for youth. Brazil has a very good, you mentioned vocational training Mm -hmm. system. The problem there is, again, it's very supply driven and not demand driven. That means that, you know, the government runs this and they say, okay, we need, you know, 20 carpenters and the private sector is saying, you know, we need eight IT analysts, you know. So linking that to the private sector, I think, is one of the big challenges. And also, you know, again, in this report, we touch upon the issue of, uh, do we all need to be university degree Mm -hmm. holders? Mm -hmm. Is there a way that we can provide 
through TVET, another avenue for people. And TVET with, is a Brazilian. Uh, TVET is the technical and vocational right, okay. training. So it's a way to skill people in professions that are, are non-university. Exactly, like two or you know, two four two years, year degree, sure. like a technical college or community exactly. college. Exactly, and you know, and these careers are also changing. Before it was very focused on you know the trades, construction, mm-hmm. carpentry, these things. Now it's shifting to services, so you can have TVET in IT management, in which you don't need mm-hmm. to be an MBA for some of these positions. And TVET is very linked to apprenticeships and the connection with the private sector. So how can the private sector be that connection between education systems and the labor market. It strikes me if countries do this correctly, you can get a leapfrog effect, right? And we're already seeing that in some areas of the world in which essentially you're going from like 2G to 5G. I saw this. I, I lived in Germany in 1988, 89, mm-hmm. 90, and I saw the transformation of East Germany go through you know, a very backward socialist country to all of a sudden every, every little town had fiber optic cables before anyone in West Germany did. So they just sped through 30, 40 years of missed development. Right. Do you think that's possible, that we will see some of those effects in if the country makes the right choices and private capital exists, that you you basically, they not only catch up with North America, but in certain areas, they jump ahead? You would have to do analysis of technology by technology. There are certain technologies that you might be able to you know, skip, like mm-hmm. you say, generations. But I wouldn't generalize that. Yeah, and yeah. also you need to have- I was thinking more that I guess the mentality from job training, right? So instead of taking a young 18-year-old and training them, again, how to be a carpenter, you train them how to to operate a 3D, advanced right. 3D yeah. printer. So they didn't have to go through the other stuff that other countries did. But also, uh, Richard, a lot of these traditional mm-hmm. trades have also incorporated this technological aspect. Yeah. So- you were talking at the beginning of how technology can displace workers, mm-hmm. but it can also add, new, more, add uh, new jobs yeah, right. and also there's a need to upskill. So think about a robot that breaks down, right? You will need somebody to fix, uh, to fix it and yeah. you don't need an MBA or, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> whatever to do that. <laughs> but you need somebody that has gone through some Although you probably training. have a lot of people who have MBAs who can't find jobs who will be fixing <laughs> robots, right? <laughs> so, I mean... And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, there's, yeah. And that's, again, that's another yeah. thing. Like these technicals, you know, and vocational schools are shamed. It's like they think that, oh, society, at least in developing countries, value the four-year degree more than like technical and vocational training. Right. And that has to maybe, you know, a little bit change. And uh, we need to have a conversation on that because... Yes, higher education produces people with better skills and, and you know, you can get a better better wages, but it's not it's it's, right, it's not, not the, the solution bullet. for everything. Yeah. And again, going back to your question about displacement, I think technology will displace certain occupations and it will change the way we carry out our, our work, but it will also provide avenues for, for new jobs. And so I don't think this fear of the fourth industrial revolution has to be so widespread. Right. Uh, it's going to, yes, it's going to affect of people, here, yeah. but there's opportunities. The real concern is that people that are you know, already behind will mm-hmm. maybe fall sure. more behind. And so we need to... And particularly people who are maybe in middle age where it's, it's maybe too late for them to go back and right. train up for I a whole mean, new career. You can upskill some people and reskill some people. Of course, if somebody wants is 50 years old and says, oh, you know, 
I'd like to be a construction worker. Well, let's think about, <laughs> you know, what type of jobs are there, you know, for you, because that's, you know, some of it's very physical and mm -hmm. others it can be, you know, okay, I want to provide services right. to construction firms. And if, if you have some kind of basic skills, you can maybe do a, a training on, you know, computer or whatever, you know, billing. I don't know. I'm just, you know, making this up. But services associated, you know, to construction. So it really depends. You mentioned the older worker type, but we have to think about, you know, in developing countries, the person that doesn't young, have yeah. any any education sure. or any means. So we have to think about those people too. So. so, Romina, one final question. I know you're working on a couple of other reports right now. Can you give us a sneak preview of what those reports are about? Yeah. <laughs> the 30-second uh, uh, description? Sure. I'm working on very different topics right now. They're related all to development, but we're looking at the Trump administration has is going to launch a new development agency uh, called the USDFC. It's the United States International Development Finance Corporation, which is modernizing OPIC and talking about private sector development. And OPIC is the Office of it's Private the Overseas private investment, private investment Corporation. Corporation. Right, right. And, you know, talking about private sector development, this is an agency that focuses on developing private sectors abroad. And so... We're providing some recommendations of what this agency should be doing in the next five right. to ten years. And then we're, we're, I'm working on a project on financial guarantees to mobilize, again, private capital to developing countries. Well, Romina Bandura, rising star at CSIS, I'm sure we will have you back on the show to talk about those interesting projects. But Romina, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.